The Toby Gribbon Show. Highlights. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Professor Ed Cohen is a transdisciplinary teacher who blends history and theory to explore contemporary issues. He incorporates a diverse range of archives spanning philosophy, economics, politics, historiography, ethnography, biology and medicine to stimulate intellectual curiosity and deep inquiry. And Professor Ed is here with us. How are you today? I'm great. And yourself? Um, brilliant, thanks. So, what does all that actually mean? Well, one of the things it means is that I'm highly overeducated. <laughs> uh, I I read a lot of books. Um, but uh, mostly it means that I'm a teacher. Uh, and what I like to do as a teacher is to try to help people ask questions about things that they often take for granted. They often assume are self-evident about the way the world is and ask them, well, why do we think these things are self-evident? Because they may not be. And in fact, you know, many of the most important things about our lives, um, you know, I teach in a Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. So, you know, questions about gender and sexuality, for example, that people grow up taking for granted that they should be this way rather than that way, or that there are only certain ways to be, or the same with like race and ethnicity. Like, what are these things? Like, why do they seem so important to us? And I try to help people understand where they came from. Historically, I try to help them think about, you know, the scientific frameworks that we use to make sense uh, of our lives and to understand if there are limits to that. So, you know, basically, I'm trying to help people ask uh, important questions that open up possibilities for thinking differently about their lives in order to see maybe there are other possibilities for the ways that we can live. Now, your work on gender and sexuality led you to investigate the European legacy of humanness and its fixation on the body. So how did you end up investigating that? The history of sexuality uh, so is a topic that is famously associated with the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who does a lot of historical, philosophical thinking. And, you know, one of his suggestions is that the idea of sexuality in the way that we currently understand it to be actually didn't exist before the 19th century. If you ask someone, for example, in the 18th century, what's your sexuality, they would have no idea what <laughs> you're talking about at all. 
So, you know, so, you know, in order to understand, you know, the history of sexuality and what I was looking at is like, why at the end of the 19th century did people start imagining that you could situate all the possible permutations of what men can do with other men or no, what men can do sexually between the poles of heterosexual and homosexual? Like, where did that opposition come from? Like, why are those opposites? Obviously, people can do both, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so that led me to have to understand more generally what was going on in our history over the last 300 years. I mean, and in fact, that is sort of my PhD. My PhD is in something called modern thought. So that's my training, actually. What is the European legacy of humanness itself? And why does it seem to be a European thing? Because it started in Europe. Um, So... (laughs) One one way of thinking about it is until 1748, uh, when Linnaeus introduced the nomenclature that we now take for granted, that humans are homo sapiens, humans were not considered to be a species like other species. The prevailing way of thinking about humanness up until then in the European context was was the idea that humans had souls and that all other living beings, no other living beings had souls in the way that we did and that God had made he given humans dominion over the plants and the animals. Um, and so humans were kind of in a special category, like we weren't animals like other animals. Yeah. But in the middle of the 18th century, <clears throat> humans began to be classified as a species along with other species. And at the same time, the idea of species <clears throat> changed. So this uh, Georges Leclerc Buffon, who was a very famous, important French naturalist in the 19th century, in the 18th century, um, introduced the idea that what makes a species a species is that it sexually reproduces individuals from one generation to the next. So suddenly, sex, which up until then had been uh, considered something that was either sinful or not sinful, and procreation, which was understood to be something that was in the service of God, now became reconceptualized as a a natural phenomenon. So, for example, and before the middle end of the 18th century, nobody would have ever thought that sex was for for the perpetuation of the human species. Like, that was, again, an idea that did not exist. Nobody could have understood their experience in that way. Beginning, I mean, that transformation also led to ideas like the idea that race is a biological category, because of course, then race is reproduced sexually, right? (laughs) So... So the idea of the human shifts from before, which, you know, where there was this idea of not of the human species, but of humankind. And humankind was defined primarily in these theological terms in terms, you know, of that we have souls, that we have language, because God gave us language in the beginning was the word and the word was God. <clears throat> and then if through the course of the 18th century, a more what we would call secular idea of the human began to emerge and began to be the basis for legal, political, economic, psychological ways of comprehending what it meant for us to be living organisms, living with other organisms who are like us. So what was it that originally inspired you to pursue all these different courses that challenge our assumptions about what it means to be human? Because I found the assumptions of the culture that I was in to be very limiting. 
I mean, <clears throat> I grew up um, in uh, my my parents were uh, cultural Jews who were atheists. My mother was a communist. My father was a physical chemist. Um, my mother was an anti-war activist in the middle of a, a place that was very pro the Vietnam War. I grew up with people telling us America, love it or leave it. Um, so I was kind of, you know, and I grew up in a place that was very homophobic when I was a young gay man. So, you know, I had a lot of reasons to question the ideas that the culture that I lived in, uh, you know, presented as being self-evident. And, you know, once you begin to be able to ask a question, then suddenly new ways of thinking about solutions become possible. Until you can ask the question differently, you can't get different ways of thinking. I mean, that's the power of, of a really productive question is it opens up possibilities that really hadn't existed before. So, yeah, basically I was looking for new ways of living my own life and thinking about the ways that we live our lives together. It seems to me today in the world in the state it is that we are in need of new ways of thinking, really radical new ways, because the old ways actually have created a lot of problems for a lot of people. In your teaching, you integrate historical and theoretical perspectives into your class. How do you use the two? Because I suppose they're very different things and maybe sometimes they don't match up. What I always try to do is use materials from different historical periods that were very important. Like one of the ways that I think about them is I give people material that were actually events in thought that changed the way at different moments that people thought and that continue to inform our lives. Uh, for example, like an example would be, where did the idea of identity come from? Like, why did human, why do we, why do we think we have an identity? Before the middle of the 20th century, really nobody would have, I mean, they might have said, oh, I'm a Catholic or, you know, I'm British or, or I'm Scottish. I guess I'm Scottish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you could have a national identity, but the concept of identity actually comes from ancient Greece. Uh, it's one of the three laws of logic that Aristotle introduced, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, the law of the excluded middle. It never referred to human beings. It only referred to the way ideas were uh, organized and whether or not they were logically coherent. Um, at the end of the 17th century, John Locke uh, took the concept of identity and introduced it into political, legal, philosophical, and economic thought, basically in order to uh, replace the idea of soul. Up until then, the idea of soul. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, was what motivated all kind, all, all, you know, all kinds of thinking about what I meant to be human. So <clears throat> in order to explain to students why now what we call identity politics has become so contested, why in the United States yeah. right now, all of these very conservative governors, you know, or our state legislatures are, you know, banning gender studies and, you know, any discussion of sexuality, they're banning what they call critical race theory. They're banning all of these identity things. Like in order to understand what's happening now, it really helps to understand, oh, wait, this idea was introduced in a particular time because it served a particular purpose. It was actually very helpful in terms of like changing the way people thought of themselves as subjects of a monarch. It helped people think about they, they had rights, that there were different possibilities for who they could become, which was very different than under feudalism. But the way that it was introduced and the way we use it now are not the same. So I try, you know, so, so by bringing philosophical, political, historical, economic uh, ways of thinking together, it helps students to understand that that the way that we live now is very complicated, um, and it, but it wasn't necessary. It, it's sort of almost not by accident, but it was. It's a, it's been fortuitous that it's held together as long as it has. It seems to be falling apart. Um, <laughs> so so I mean, actually, history right now helps to teach these things because so many things that we have taken for granted are now causing trouble. So actually, people really want to know about these things. Um, and you know, I have a lot of crazy ideas to help them. And what's the kind of reception that you get from people that you teach? Great, actually. I'm. I mean, not to brag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a good teacher um, uh, and you know, I have a good style. Uh, you know, I call what I do stand-up philosophy. So we laugh a lot. Uh, yeah. but, but I give, I, I feel very lucky because I feel like I do give people tools to think about, to ask questions about things in their own lives that they may find are limiting the ways that they can move forward, that they can change themselves. And so I feel like, you know, I'm very good at planting certain seeds. I don't 
know always if they'll germinate, you know, where when they'll sprout or they'll flourish. But but I do know because I've been teaching for a long time, people come back, talk to me, that actually it it seems that it does help people a lot. So so you know, I feel a good I feel good about what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any thinkers or maybe teachers that came before you that have influenced your work or are you the first guy to do all this oh no never uh-uh, no <laughs> no i mean you could go back into antiquity i mean i yeah. uh, there's nothing new really in a certain way i mean they're fundamental problems that we all still struggle with like how to you know the way that it was conceptualized in like greek philosophy the problem of the one and the many like yeah. how do we experience ourselves as being singular and yet connected and that's that's a problem that's always been a problem people still struggle with this problem um but no my main you know my my intellectual idol i'll put it that way uh, <laughs> is uh is this guy i mentioned before michel foucault who was a french uh a thinker, French thinker um, in the 20th century, probably the most important, yeah, probably the most important thinker of the 20th century. Certainly uh, his influence is felt in all kinds of domains. Um, and it's been very important, especially like he wrote a book called Discipline and Punish about the history of the prison. It's been very important to people in the prison abolition movement. His book, History of Sexuality, has been super important for people thinking about queerness, about you know gender identity, um yeah he he was a very remarkable person um and i am nowhere in any league close to him i yeah. bow down before him and say i am not worthy i am not worthy <laughs> but, but yeah he's my main guy i mean but many other many 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 other great teachers um i've been very lucky to have um yeah, uh, I don't know if you want a bibliography or... <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're teaching transdisciplinary courses, are there any challenging aspects along the way? Well, yes, of course. I mean, there are, right now there are very basic challenges in higher education. I mean, which COVID, the COVID has certainly exacerbated, but, and also digital technology. Students have a hard time focusing for long periods. So giving them reading uh, is difficult um, that they will actually do. Um, and, you know, I teach at a large state university in the United States where higher education is not understood to be a social value. So our students are working and they're taking on a lot of debt. They have a lot of anxiety. Um, so, you know, even just carving out space in their lives, time, to, to be able to think is our, already a challenge, for sure. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, in the United States, you know, which is maybe somewhat different than Scotland or, or countries <clears throat> that have a different sense of history, America has a, a, a very unusual sense of history compared to almost any other nation in the world. Whereas, like, say, it, well, everywhere else, basically yeah. history is understood to be archaeological. Like, if you dig down, you will find earlier forms of life, you know, human settlement in the same area. So it's a kind of vertical model of history. Whereas the United States... 
because it's a settler colonial nation that basically had no regard for the indigenous populations. The way that we narrate our history is horizontally from the East Coast across the continent to the West Coast. So like the Star Trek you know, the famous, uh, the final frontier, you know, the idea of the frontier is a, a, a highly American way of thinking. We are always becoming new again. So American students have a very hard time thinking about history. They don't have much historical training and it's just not part of our perspective. We unfortunately have an ideology that we're individuals, that we make ourselves, that we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And we have very little regard or the conditions from which we come. And so I always try to tell the students my favorite misquote from Karl Marx in the 18th Brumaire. He says, yeah, we make our own history, but not in circumstances of our own making. So the hardest part of teaching this stuff is trying to help students understand the circumstances because they're quite complicated. Yes. And what advice would you give to those who want to challenge assumptions and think more critically about what it means to be human because they might be worried, as you mentioned earlier, about the conservative voices maybe challenging them and also maybe voices on the other side who might claim they got it wrong. The basic takeaway would be many, if not most, if not all, of the main assumptions that we make about the world were invented at a certain point in time. And they may have been very important at the moment they were invented. They were invented to do certain things, but it doesn't make them necessary. It doesn't make them universal. It doesn't make them eternal. So the more that we are able to reflect on what we take for granted about the world, especially the kinds of limits that we assume are necessary for how we live in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to other people, that we can begin to ask why. Why why is that necessary? Because until you can ask why is that necessary, you can't move beyond that. You can't begin to imagine new ways of living. And it seems to me like right now, one of the most important things for everyone on this planet is that we use our imaginations to to invent, to create new ways of living together, both as with other humans and with non-humans you know, who we share this planet, that we need a fundamentally new way of imagining what it means to be human. That is necessary if we want to go on living. Well, where are we able to find all your teaching services and everything that you'd want us to find? Well, you can look at my personal website, which is called healingcouncil.com, or you can look me up. I'm a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Rutgers University. My name's Ed Cohen. And if you Google that, you can find it or you go to Rutgers University Women's Studies and I'm on there. And it has many, many things that I've written and many links to little films and fun things. So um, yeah, I'd be happy to interact with people. You can email me from there. Excellent. Well, many thanks for joining us. It's been great to have you on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Throbbing Pulse of Sound, the Toby Gribbon Show.